Well, we love, we truly love, a great underdog story. It's inevitable. It's just baked into our DNA. We just love any story where there is this great triumph over the impossible, where the statistics don't line up, where there is greatness, proven greatness, despite the odds, where there is a lowly team person, whatever it might be, proving everyone wrong. We love a great underdog story. That's why, as I cheer for my favorite sports teams, the moment they lose or they're out of the playoffs, I just see who has the lowest record. Who has the worst record? That's the person I'm cheering for now. Because I just want to see the greatness unfold. I want to see the unpredictability of it. I want to see something that was not supposed to happen, happen. I want to see that unpredicted glory happen. Some days, you probably don't think about it this way, but some days we feel like the underdog, right? Those same impossible circumstances are now piled up against me. Those terrible situations now piled up against me. And whether it's the beginning of the day or the end of the day, you already have this overwhelming feeling that everything either will go wrong or everything already has gone wrong. Is this any of your, is this your morning so far? Good. Everybody's having a perfect Mother's Day morning. That's great. I'm so glad for you guys. I think some days we just feel like the underdog. The stats don't line up. There's, we imagine zero futures where the day could be considered a success. But then, miraculously, at the end of the day, it actually happened. We actually have a good day, right? We are the underdog. Those impossible circumstances turned out to be possible. Amen. Right? The terrible situations turned out to be not that terrible. Your boss wasn't that horrible of a person today. Right? And despite that overwhelming feeling that everything will go wrong or everything has gone wrong, we get this glimpse through the murky, dark mire of that desperation, that despair. We see that really everything has gone kind of well. And in that moment, in that moment, we pat ourselves on the back and say, I am the triumphant underdog. I have conquered. I am victorious. I am triumphant. Can we possibly say that, though? Can we look at the world around us and say, I am the underdog? I think in a lot of ways, yes, we can. We can look around the world. We can look at our job. We can look at our career. We can look at our family. We can look at our relationships. We can look at the political landscape. We can look at the financial landscape. We can forecast out all these, all these arenas of life and say, wow, it really is stacked against me. I really am just about to be smashed by this tidal wave of, uh, yeah, of wrong. But to think about it spiritually, could we say that? To say it spiritually, am I truly an underdog? And again, given the fact of sin, given the brokenness of our hearts and our natures, we have to say yes. We have to say yes. I am an underdog, right? The stats are against me. And yet the Bible brings us just one step lower than that. If there's the top dog, and then there's the underdog, the Bible really paints the picture that you and me, we are the never dog. We are the ones who are crushed beneath everything else, just scraping for that top spot. We might be tempted to think that there is a part of us, there's a piece of us that, that can actually triumph spiritually. There might be an argument in our hearts. Right? There might be, again, this temptation to think that just some way, somehow, if I can just put it all together, that I will actually be able to say, I have done it spiritually. 
the Bible paints this hard truth for us that we can never do that. That there's no amount of our even just prolonged faithfulness that can ever be stockpiled tall enough that the Lord should say, thank you for being that faithful. I now bring you into my family. Today's passage is going to serve us in two distinct ways. The first is, it is going to remove from us, and I think this is what, uh, this is what Paul is doing in Romans so far, is going to remove from us any hope, any desire, any practical plan of mounting the evidence of our own faithfulness before the Lord. It is going to, in that sense, give us a hopelessness toward our own efforts of faithfulness. But at the same time, it is going to come alongside us and encourage us that really the advantage we seek from our work, the advantage we seek from our faithfulness, is really only found in one person. And that advantage is God. The big idea for today in this passage is God's faithfulness is our only advantage. Again, this is going to critique our own hearts, but then it's going to encourage us nonetheless. God's faithfulness is our only advantage. Look at it with me here in verse 1. He asks the question right off the bat. This is the question that governs the entire passage. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Last week's passage, the paragraph right before this, was difficult, but it was crucial for the Jewish people in Rome. They heard the truth that salvation doesn't belong to the bloodline Jewish person. Salvation belongs to the spiritual Jew. And Paul goes into great detail outlining how the the spiritual Jew isn't the one who works. It isn't the one, as we read here, who who values circumcision, who performs the law rightly, but it is the one who has his heart circumcised, the one who is faithful before the Lord. It's not law-keeping that saves the Jewish person. It is faithful obedience that saves the Jew. And so Paul, knowing that that was uh, very, uh, how do you say, it was very destructive to the, the idea of how secure the Jewish person was in their heritage, now launches into this rhetorical debate. You'll see here, as Mike was reading and I read it, it's like this question and answer. Paul is trying to get ahead of the curve here for those who are going to be reading his letter. He's trying to get ahead and say, these are the questions that I know you guys will ask, so let's just spend some time to answer them. So, first question, then what advantage has the Jew? Again, he's asking the question, well, if law-keeping isn't going to secure salvation, then is there actually any advantage for the Jewish person? The answer, of course, is no, right? It does not. Law-keeping is ineffective at bringing salvation to the Jewish person. So then the follow-up question is, because probably the Jewish people would think, well, we have many advantages, so what are some of those advantages? And he asks the question then, okay, what is there? Is there any advantage at all? Verse 2 answers the question. He actually says, much in every way. He says, there are. There are many, many of them, and he gives the chief one of them all. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. 
Now, there's a lot of debate about what this means, oracles of God. Maybe we get this uh, fanciful Disney picture in our mind with the smoke and somebody with a pointy hat dancing on a cauldron, and they say, please give me an oracle, and some orb pops out, right? And the orb floats around for a little bit and then says a message, and yay, they have their oracle, right? There's other debates about this, like what part of God's faithfulness is this? What part of God's scripture even is this? But I think it's actually very simple. It is the Old Testament. The oracles of God, the message of God is the Old Testament. And to think about this, again, from, from the perspective of the Jewish people there at Rome as they received this letter, they would understand that the message of God, the oracle of God, what God was trying to transfer to his own people through the Old Testament is actually very simple. It is a record of God's faithfulness. It is a record of God's faithfulness. Through the hard yet happy history of the Israelite people, there is one constant theme, there is one constant message that strings every book of the Old Testament together, and that is God is faithful. God is faithful. Out of that faithfulness, for sure, he calls his people to be faithful. Right? And the Jewish people were excited about that. Yes, give me the list of things that I need to do in order to prove myself faithful. You guys went through some of those last week. But then also, God, and I love this, God knowing how quick, not just the Jewish heart, but our own heart can be, to law-keeping, to earning, to maintaining salvation, gives these promises, in light of the Jewish unfaithfulness, to be faithful for us. And again, this theme strung through the Old Testament beginning to end of God's faithfulness isn't just a call for us to be faithful, but it's really his promise to provide faithfulness to us. Now, I know your minds are already spooling ahead, thinking about the cross. Just bear with me one more moment. We've got to answer a few more questions here. But God, planning out his faithfulness, gives the message of that faithfulness to his people, to Israel. So, Given chapter 2 and Paul's very, very difficult words to the Jewish people about how they were unfaithful, verse 3's question makes a ton of sense. He says this, well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? All right? And Paul is simply just asking the question, well, could there ever be so much unfaithfulness that the faithfulness of God would be counted as nothing? Could there be an amount of unfaithfulness that would squander, misuse, overcome God's faithfulness? Look at verse 4. By no means. By no means. Just think about this for one moment with me. That there is no amount of unfaithfulness. We think about this actually in, in two ways. There's no amount of unfaithfulness from God's people, Israel, that would squander God's faithfulness. At the same time, there's no amount of our own personal unfaithfulness that can squander God's faithfulness. How could that ever be? Look at the rest of verse 4. By no means, let God be true though everyone were a liar. What Paul is saying here is that God is true. And when we say true nowadays, like your true truth, 
stuff like that, we, we almost get the idea of there's this malleable thing, something that we've agreed to. When the Bible says that God is true, it means he is everlasting, eternally, unshakably, unchangeably, immutably true, steadfast, right, not wrong, right? That he is the one who is always right, no matter what. Let God be faithful and right, though everyone else were a liar. And, happy Mother's Day, you and I are all liars. How are we a liar? Not just because we lied, not just because I had my fourth donut, but said it was my third donut. That's not it. What the lying here means is that every sin is a doubt against God. Let's think about it for one second. Every time we sin against God, what we're really saying is, God, I understand who you are. I get it intellectually, right? I understand who you are. But in my heart, I have devised another way. I have found the alternate path. And in this moment, that alternate path is really good, especially compared to your path. So what happens in that moment? Every sin is a sin. It's a lie against God. So he's not just talking about saying something that is untrue because God is true. What he's saying is God is this faithful, everlasting, eternal, righteous rock that will never, ever change. And every one of our sins is directly against God. We make him out to be a liar. In our hearts, we say, God, Father, as faithful as you are, in this moment, you have lied and I'm choosing a different way. So how could our faithlessness, if it's really that bad, how could our faithlessness not thwart or overcome God's faithfulness? Look at the next part of verse 4 here. God is true. We are sinful liars. But then he turns to Psalm 51.4 and he quotes this verse. That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. There's two ways of understanding this verse. Psalm 51 is that, of course, famous confessional verse of King David where King David has been confronted by the prophet Nathaniel over his affair with Bathsheba, and she's pregnant, and uh, comes to him and says, hey, there's this guy who has a lamb, and this rich guy came and took the poor guy's lamb and sacrificed it for all of his buddies. And David says, I'm going to flip a table on this guy, right? Get this guy in here. Let's kill him right now, right? And Nathan goes, well, actually, that's you, right? You're the man who stole from somebody who did not have much took it from him, and used it for your own good. And Psalm 51, after that, after that very direct confrontation from Prophet Nathaniel, is David's prayer of confession to the Lord. And in that prayer, he calls God justified. God is absolutely right and correct to judge David, right? Because he has sinned, right? He is absolutely right. And then David actually says to the Lord, may you prevail in your judgment against me. David in that moment, confronted with his sin, says, Lord, you have absolutely every right to judge me as a liar and a sinner, and I hope that your judgment is true. Right? Take that in for one moment. Paul here, quoting it, actually changes a few words and makes it about not, not necessarily the subject matter being God, but about the Jewish people that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Saying that, Jewish people, I hope 
that you are justified in your words. Again, t- picking up this idea of this liar. I hope that you're justified in your heart-level response to God's faithfulness. And when you are judged by the Lord who is over all things, that you would prevail, that you would triumph, that you would have an advantage. Either which way, the idea is the same. That God's faithfulness is the only advantage for the Jewish person. And this correlates to us. First and foremost, we can just simply be thankful. Praise God that our unfaithfulness does not undo his faithfulness. You think about your life, think about your morning, think about all the things that you desire secretly, desire out loud, whatever it might be. Think about how all of, all of your words, all your desires, all of your thoughts are all laced with this thread to be tempted to unfaithfulness. Think about your weeks, your months, your years, your previous life, as sometimes we call it. Think about all the unfaithfulness you didn't just desire, think, or say. Think about all the faithfulness you did. And then just times that by 20 billion people, the history of the world. Our mounds of unfaithfulness do not undo God's perfect faithfulness. Praise God. And yet our hearts are still quick to think, oh, but you know what? There is still a part of me that has an advantage. There is still a part of me that can just hold up just a little candle, just a little something to say, Lord, don't I just deserve just a little bit of your faithfulness? Haven't I just earned just a little sliver, right? Isn't there just a part of what I have done that you should say, good job? Today we need to think about the question in our own hearts. We need to ask the question, what do we think our advantages against sin and death and condemnation. What is our advantage against sin, death, or condemnation? Romans chapter 1 goes into it. Uh, in unfaithfulness we give in to foolishness and the foolish person is condemned. That is the track. Those are the railroad tracks for the person who has no advantage, which is each of us. We have no leg up on the Lord. What advantage do we think that we have against sin, death, or God's judgment? Is it our works? Man, I really did put together a stellar Mother's Day card for my wife. Actually, I didn't. I am so sorry. Right? So there you go. I'm already sunk for the day. Right? Could it be identity? Right? Could it be identity? I am this type of person. I believe these types of things. Could it be family history? Could it be family history? Thinking through, I've attended church, my family's attended church, I've always been around church, my parents have always been around church, my dad's a pastor, whoever it might be, whatever, whatever, right? Family history. Or how about knowledge, right? Pastor Mike got his doctorate, he read like a billion pages, that's great, full to bursting with knowledge, it's awesome. But to rely on knowledge is no advantage against sin, death, or God's judgment. Maybe the most, maybe most devious of them all, just God's grace. Maybe just thinking, you know what? I could do, I could, could do it all, and God would have to look at me, please, because his grace abounds. See, God's faithfulness is our only advantage. And here, in this passage, Paul is trying to get at that specific thing. Law-keeping is no advantage. The work, identity, family history, knowledge... God's universal grace for me. He has to save me because that's who he is. All those things are advantages that we think we have against God. And yet God's faithfulness is our only advantage. It's our only saving advantage. 
And it has something here for us. It's just not our saving advantage, but it reorients us to faithfulness. We realize, just looking at God's faithfulness, we realize that there really is no advantage over sin, death, or condemnation that we can muster on our own. Outside of Christ, outside of his death and resurrection, there is nothing that we can present to the Lord. The truth of the gospel is this, that Christ stood in our place, that he died the death that you and I deserve for our heaping mound of unfaithfulness to the eternal rock of faithfulness. And yet, Christ stands in the way. And the advantage over sin, Christ was perfect. Advantage over death, Christ raised from the dead. Advantage over condemnation, Christ took the judgment that you and I deserve. In every way, God's faithfulness is our advantage, and that shows us that Christ is our only advantage. If you're here today and you have not repented of your sin and believed in Jesus, maybe you can think to yourself, maybe the Holy Spirit in your heart right now is just welling up this idea that, yeah, I have been relying on my work, my identity, my family history, my knowledge, God's universal grace, maybe even just the idea that, you know what, I just, I just really just don't care, Right? If you have not dwelt on the everlasting faithfulness of God, I encourage you to think about the everlasting, unconquerable faithfulness of God. His faithfulness to save sinners, but then also, as we see here in this passage, His faithfulness to judge sinners. The encouragement, you'll read about this as you guys go on through Romans. Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10. It goes on and on. What is the response, the proper response to the truth of the gospel? It is to repent of sin and to rely wholly on God who is faithful and just to save. Turn away from any advantage that you have and turn to Christ. Now, if you have repent of your sin and believed. I think there's two applications you can make here of this first chunk. The first is this. How can I avoid squandering the message of God's faithfulness? Right? How can, I, how can I not do what the Jews did? Think about it. Their entire life revolved, their entire culture, their entire civilization revolved around the oracles of God. And by the time Christ comes, not only have they abandoned faithfulness, but they actually said, you know what, Jesus, uh, you know what, I was just thinking about it, the entire Old Testament message, yeah, you should die, right? There's incredible unfaithfulness, not just to follow the law in, in faithfulness, but then also to actually reject Jesus as the Messiah, right? They were completely, by the time Jesus comes, they were completely against the message of God's faithfulness. So one of the big questions we ask is, how can I avoid squandering the message of God's faithfulness? And I think that, I think it's just simply enough, it is to go before God's message, go before the Bible, with the expectation of responding in faith. The expectation of responding in faith. And one of the ways that we can practically do this is just to think about God's faithfulness. To think about God's faithfulness. We spend a lot of time planning our days. We spend a lot of time thinking a week ahead, a month ahead. We spend a lot of time thinking through previous things, previous conversations, right? We spend a lot of time thinking about things that have happened, that are happening, and will happen. But I encourage you to remember God's faithfulness. Remember his previous faithfulness. Remember his faithfulness here and now. Remember that he promises to be faithful. What's one of the ways that we can avoid squandering the message of God's faithfulness is just to remind ourselves and remind each other 
that God is faithful. The second one is to respond to God's word in faith, whether that's your own personal study every day, whether that is sitting here listening to my sermon, whether that is listening to sermons online, whether that's somebody reading God's word to you, whether that is a brother or sister in Christ coming to you and correcting you with scripture. Every time God's word is presented to us, we have a simple goal, and that goal is to respond in faith faithfulness that leads to action. If today you are finding it difficult, not just to pay attention to my sermon, I'm sorry, but if you're just finding it difficult to think to yourself, when was the last time I actually responded in faith to the preaching of God's word, to the reading of God's word, to biblical correction from a faithful brother or sister? When was the last time I actually saw a faithful response from me? If you're saying, I, I just can't remember, my first, please pray about that. That was one of those tensions where you know what is right, but you just don't see it in your life, pray about that tension. Respond to God's word in faith. And then lastly, right, along the same lines, repent of unfaithfulness. Again, you guys will see this throughout the book of Romans as it unfolds before you, but Paul is going to ask the reader of Romans to continue repenting of their unfaithfulness. Every time sin against God, every time we think something wrong every time we lie again, that doubt towards God, that is a way of seeing God's faithfulness poured out for us in the offer of repentance. So repent of unfaithfulness. What's another way that we can take this passage and apply it is this. Should we do away with every advantage we have? No. Any Christian advantage we have, we should use to promote faithfulness in others. We must promote Christian advantage. Again, it's not for salvation. It's not so that if we do it the best way, right, we'll be able to save people or ourselves, but it's promote faith in others. Some of these things that we can promote, right, here at church, we can promote God's word. We can promote it in each other's lives. Church, are you guys presenting the advantage of God's word to each other? The list goes on. Spouses, are you presenting the advantage of God's word to your husband or wife? Parents, are you presenting the advantage of God's word to your children? Employees or bosses, are you guys advantaging God's word to those you are working with? Young adults, are you guys spending time in God's word to your advantage and the advantage of others? Teens, are you guys spending time figuring out the advantages of God's word? And when somebody tells you the advantage of God's word, is your first reaction an eye roll? Like, this is killing me. Or is it, okay, I want to learn what faithfulness looks like to God. Just because there is no advantage for salvation does not mean we do not promote the advantages of the Christian faith. God's word, prayer, worship, gathering together like a church. Let's be a church. Let's be a people who take the advantage of God and use it to promote faith in others. But what we must not do with God's faithfulness is take advantage of it. Look at verse 5 with me. <clears throat> but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. Wow. This is the second objection. First objection is, well, does my unfaithfulness nullify the faithful, faithful or does my unfaithfulness 
nullify the faithfulness of God. The second objection is the exact opposite. Well, if my unrighteousness doesn't thwart the faithfulness of God, and if you kind of squint your eyes and think about it real hard, it actually goes to show God's righteousness. Well, what do you know? I just get to do whatever I want. No, no. Does sin actually serve God's righteous plan? Does sin protect us from God's judgment? Look at verse 6. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? If this were true, if our unrighteousness was actually acceptable by God, just think about this with me, then there would be no grounds for God to continue in his faithful truth. He would nullify verse 4 up above. There's no way. There's no way. God has to judge the sin in the world because he is that righteous. God is righteous, so he has to judge unrighteousness. But this was such a sticking point for the Jewish people that Paul actually goes in and defends himself against their accusations to prove this point. Look at verse 7 and 8. But if through my lie, Paul is talking about himself, right? Through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. Again, there we see truth again. If his truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. All right, we have to think about this. I apologize, but we have to go into argument mode here, okay? So pretend this is like your best friend and you're just laying into him for his benefit, of course, right? To prove the point here that God's righteousness is not undone by our unrighteousness, Paul defends himself. If Paul's lies are actually serving God, then God could not judge him could not judge him. But, but, if that were true, God couldn't or wouldn't, won't or can't judge him, even though he's a liar, then the Jewish leaders shouldn't do that either. Yet, Paul stands under their slanderous condemnation for doing evil in God's name. Those who were against Paul were saying, you are doing evil against the Old Testament law in God's name, which then, turn the tables on them, is exactly the ministry philosophy that they, the religious leaders, were promoting. I know, that was a lot, but just bear with me. It's a cyclical argument. Paul says, you can't condemn me for the evil that you accuse me of if you also say out of the same mouth that God won't judge unrighteousness. What does this mean for us? It means this. Because God is righteous, licentiousness is taking advantage of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is our only advantage, but that doesn't mean we take advantage of God's faithfulness. Neither knowing or trusting him, neither calling him a liar, thinking it through poorly, acting in foolishness when God calls us to wisdom, none of that. Again, he sums it up so well, their argument, verse 8, why not do evil that good may come? There's no way for us to prove good by acting in evil. And just a side note here, thinking about this, also their condemnation is just, right? God's condemnation against them. Just think about it this way. When was the last time God proved he was good by doing evil? 
right? When was the last time that God proved he was good by doing evil? Now, of course, God faithfully uses evil to prove his glory and his goodness. But we can be thankful, church, that God never proves his goodness by doing evil. So God's faithfulness is our only saving advantage. That is Paul's argument for this portion of the letter. But he warns us against taking advantage of his faithfulness. What are some ways that we take advantage of God's faithfulness? Well, first, it is simply just that we think we can earn salvation. Secondly, we saw that in the beginning half. Secondly, it is to think that we may live any way we want because God is so faithful, right? To use his faithfulness in our unfaithful ways. That should not be a part of us. Secondly, God's faithfulness doesn't need our faithfulness to be maintained. There's an aspect of our hearts that say, okay, God has saved me, but now I need to maintain it. Now I need to make sure that I continue being faithful so God doesn't cast me back out. But the proper way to see God's faithfulness as an advantage for salvation is simply to be law, a law keeper for blessing. This is, again, not to be saved, but simply by obedience, God shapes us to his glory. Think about it this way, that it's actually because of God's faithfulness, and now I am choosing to be faithful to him, I will obey God's ways, and that is a blessing to me. That is a blessing to me. By faith, obedience to God's way shapes us into God's glory. God gives us his faithfulness so that we may be faithful for his greatness and our good. So the question for us this morning is, where are you taking advantage of God's faithfulness? Is there an aspect of your life where you're saying, because I know God is who he is, I'm just choosing to live whichever way that I want? Or maybe it's because God is faithful, but he's not 100% faithful, I need to chip in in order to maintain my salvation. Or maybe it's just refusing refusing to receive his blessing of, of following his ways to love him and love others. In either one of these ways, there really is a debate inside of us about the faithfulness of God as an advantage for us to save us from our sin through Christ. Where are you taking advantage of God's faithfulness? I wasn't alive, uh, but in 1980 at the Winter Olympics, you guys already know what I'm talking about, the U.S. men's team and the Soviet Union team faced off against each other uh, for hockey, hockey glory, right? This is the height of the Cold War. Tensions were high between the U.S. and, of course, the Soviet Union. And this game turned out to be one of the most memorable, if not the most important, uh, game ever played in the 20th century. Does anybody know the name of this game that I'm talking about? Really? No? What? Are you going to get this one? Miracle on Ice. Just think about those words for one moment. Yes, pinnacle sportsing achievement, right? Absolutely unfathomable. USA had no business being there whatsoever. Soviet Union was running over people, right, at hockey. To think that the USA ended up beating, spoiler alert, the Soviet Union, going on to win gold is absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, not a miracle on ice. Think about that. There's been so much ink spilt about what advantage the U.S. had over the Soviet Union. Uh, to think about, to pick apart the game minute by minute, second by second, to think about, to see where the advantage actually came through. But there was an advantage. 
I don't know exactly what it was. Uh, I've read that it was just the, the grit, the determination of the U.S. team to win for the U.S. That might be true. might be something else. I'm not sure. But it was not a miracle. Miracle is something that happens that there is absolutely no possible way for it to ever happen unless there's divine intervention. Yes, this was a true underdog story, but it was not a miracle. God's faithfulness towards sinful people expressed in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, that's a miracle. Against our own unfaithfulness, Christ chooses to be faithful to us. The miracle of our salvation comes only because God is faithful to our advantage. And praise God for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, again we thank you for the blessing it is to gather together as people under the faithfulness of Christ. Lord, I pray today that you would indeed help us to not just know that you are faithful, but Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to trust your faithfulness. Lord, help us to uh, turn away from sin that we might justify. Lord, we pray that you would help us to turn away from any, anything that we would believe would be helpful to our salvation on our own terms. Lord, I pray that we would turn toward you in faithful obedience, Lord, for your glory and our good. Pray, Heavenly Father, that you would do this through the power of the Spirit in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.